We sell it to the trust on an installment sale. We get a promissory note back from the trust saying they will pay us 8% interest on the million dollars that went into the trust or whatever it was. And it can be paid monthly, quarterly, annually, however you want to set it up. Um, as the creators of the trust, you're allowed to dictate the terms of the note. And then you, you get to appoint a trustee and the trustee runs the trust and then the trustee can invest the money at our suggestion, the trustee can, we usually invest in what we suggest to invest in. You're listening to The Azria Show. If you're looking for quality real estate investing information that you can trust, you've found it. Stay tuned and join the tens of thousands of members that have already benefited from Azria, your home for education, market information, support, and networking opportunities that will advance your real estate investing career. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Azria Show. I am your host, Marcus Maloney, and we have our co-host, Mike Delpreet, and Executive Director. How you doing, Mike? Wonderful. Excited to be here. Excited for our, our conversation with Todd. And our focus is always to inspire and to help real estate investors one property at a time. And then we have our guest today, Todd Van Meter, who hails from North Georgia. He has an extensive background, real estate through his blood, true and true, 40 years investing. He's a builder, redeveloper, did creative finance deals, rent to own subdivisions. He developed syndications quite a bit. So I just want you to get ready and and take your notes because we're gonna gonna spread our wings on today and talk about quite a bit. So, Todd, how are you doing today? How are you, sir? I'm doing wonderful. It's great to be with y'all. I appreciate the opportunity to to share some information that's hopefully helpful to to the listeners. Yeah, thank you so much for being here. And not often do we have someone that's been in real estate for over 40 years. And I know that your experience, you have a lot to share with us. So let's go back. Let's take it back very briefly. How did you get into real estate and what did you do like during those initial years? Consider myself very lucky. I discovered real estate at a young age. My family moved around a lot when I was a kid and we lived in a lot of new home subdivisions. As a kid, I was always out climbing through houses under construction. When I was about 18, 19 years old, I started working uh, in construction, helping builders and after school doing things and with, with builders and helping them on the job site and stuff. And I just developed a love for being around houses. So I actually went to college and majored in real estate and worked three jobs, mostly in real estate. While I was in college, I worked for property managers. I worked for builders. I actually worked as an on-site property manager for a year and a half. In a 500 unit apartment complex, that'll teach you a lot real quick. Yeah. When you live amongst the residents, you know, 24 7, seven days a week, you see and hear it all. Um, but it just gave me a lot of good, varied experience. So once I completed college, I knew that the real estate's what I wanted to continue doing. Okay. All right. So you got the educational background and you were getting some hands-on experience. What was your first foray into your first acquisition, first property, and how did you manage it? What did you do? The first thing I did was I went and got my real estate license because at that time, I don't know if you know many people on here remember, but there was a time before computers and we didn't have computers back then. We didn't have cell phones. We didn't have any way to get any information other than published books. So I thought I got to get my real estate license so I have access to those published books. 
so I can see what's available to buy so I can try to find deals. We couldn't Google stuff or anything like that. So it was always all published books. And the, and the amazing part was, is that when the, the day those books became available, they were obsolete. That information had gone to print three to four weeks before the book was available. It was already obsolete. You drive out to look at a property and half the time it was already under contract or something else by the time you looked at it. So I got soured on that because it was so slow and I got to see a house. And, oh, I lo- love this neighborhood. I love to look about the house and go out there and it's already under contract. So, um, you know, I decided I would I would do it a different route. So I started looking for lots that were available because lots don't sell nearly as fast as houses do. And I had grown up around new homes. So I started buying lots and building houses on the lots. And that's how I got started into new home construction. And I've built a couple of hundred houses from scratch now. So that was probably my biggest impetus to starting. Okay. Now, where did you get the builder experience from? Because you don't go from just looking at houses to then just building them. So where did that experience come from? I had worked for three or four different builders while I was in college helping them with a lot of their punch out stuff, fixing things that were wrong with the houses, meeting their subcontractors on the job. And just in that, after four or five years of working for other builders before college and during college, it gave me the confidence that I could do what they were doing um, because I'd been around it enough. And, and I'm, I'm always just been like a sponge. I ask my parents, ask my sisters, I'm always asking questions. And so I, everywhere I was, every job site, I was always in questions. How are you doing that? Why are you doing that? Is there a different way to do that? Why do you do it that way? So I was always soaking up the information. And I just, I had the confidence. I've always been a, some call me strong-willed, strong-headed, strong-minded, whatever you want to call it, stubborn. Mm-hmm. And so I just knew I could do it. I figured if, if and actually the fir- very first house I built, I hired two guys and we actually framed it. We roofed it. We put the siding on it. We put the cabinets in, we paint, we did over 50% of the labor in it ourselves with our own hands. And there's no better way to learn than that. Just be out there with a hammer in your hand. And, yep. and, and the main reason I was doing it that way, it was less expensive. And when you're starting out, I had nothing. I was trying to save every dime I could. So I'd, days, nights, and weekends, I'd be out there doing as much of the work as I could to get it built. I think that's a great point, man. I think we missed that a lot in today's age where it's, you went and worked for someone, you learned the craft, you learned from their mistakes, right? And then you went out and did it yourself <laughs> and you, yeah. you got that hands-on experience. I think people look for the fast way sometimes, right? Just want to be the entrepreneur, just want to jump in and get big, so to speak. But I think that's what we need more of that apprenticeship, internship stuff in our business. Yeah, that's what it used to be. There was apprenticeships and a lot of things that you could do. And like even to be a butcher at a meat shop and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And you just don't see those kinds of programs. If they're still there, they're certainly not promoted or being talked about much. And that's sad because there's some really great trades and some really great careers out there that people could be doing because college is certainly not everybody. And college has gotten ridiculously expensive. Yeah. And, and like you said, Todd, and, and I second what you're saying, Mike, is that that proximity is power when you're around those crafts and those trades, there's certain things that you pick up that you can't learn by sitting in a desk, sitting in a classroom or online. There are certain conversations, like you said, why did you do it that way? Why did you sweat this pipe this way versus this way? Or why did you run it this way versus that way? And that's how you really become a master craftsman is by years of experience and years of hands-on in the dirt, in the muck, in the mire and really learning it. So that's how you became a master builder and you built over how many houses, Todd? 
We've built about 150 so far. Okay. So 150 houses. And a lot of people in this day and age will say, okay, let me sit down at a computer and let me see how I can learn how somebody else is building a house versus saying, you know what, let me go out here and not get paid and just really learn that craft and then pick it up from there and learn how to do it. So building those houses, Todd, was it right there in your own backyard or was there competition from other builders? What was going on during the real estate market during this time? That was in 1990, and we were in a bit of a recession at that time, 89 to 90, there was a recession going on. And so I've been through five recessions now with my businesses. And recessions are a great time to start a business because there is less competition going on. So it made it easier for me to get some good subcontractors for the trades that I needed. For example, my my electrician on that very first house has wired every all the one or two houses that I've built for the last 30 some years. Wow. And my plumber that I started with on that house did all my plumbing for about 17 or 18 years until unfortunately he got bad health and, and then eventually passed. And so I had to switch to a different plumber. But I've got some great people during that time. It's a, just because a recession going on or because interest rates are high. Sometimes that's the best time to start because there's not as much competition because you got a lot of people saying, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to buy a property now. Rates are too high. You don't have as many. Ask any agent. They're not getting 10, 20, 30 offers on every property the same day it gets listed like they were a couple of years ago. A couple of years ago, the rates were low, but you couldn't get a house because there was multiple offers on them in the first hour it got listed. So I oh, think true. today's a great time to be buying and being invested. But I started 90 and I literally bought the house, the lot next door to the house my wife and I were living in went up for sale and I made an offer on it and bought it. So I literally, it was literally in my side yard that I did my first house. So a question. Like, walk out my garage and across my front yard and I'd be at the job site. That's amazing. So what about the people that are like wanting to get in the business or maybe they've been in the business and you always hear, hey, it's cheaper to fix and flip a house versus the cost to build a house. Like how, how does someone even pick which way they should start or go? I think a lot of it depends on your personality and your interest. Mm-hmm. What excites you? What do you want to do every day? You know, for some people, I hear from a lot of former rehabbers, their biggest claim is it was just, it was everything was a mess. It's just dirt everywhere. Everything, I tear out a piece of sheetrock and there's rotted wood behind the wall. And, and that kind of stuff would disgust them. If that disgusts you, then rehabbing is probably not for you. But there's other guys who are, have been rehabbers and very do very good at it, who they pull out and see rotted wood and they said, I'm, I'm going to make a lot of money on this house. It's, I used to hear a real estate agent tell a story. He called to talk about the dead dog house. He got a call about from another agent saying, would you come make an offer on this house? I can't sell it. And there was a dead dog in the living room. And he said, nobody will even go in the house. It smells so bad because mm-hmm. this dead dog is in there. They're like, I'm not looking at that house. And so he said, dead dogs make you money. And he bought that house cheap because nobody else would make an offer on it. Got the dog removed, got the smell out of there and you know made a lot of money off that house. So it's like that. You need to find what suits your personality. And some people like brand new everything. And if that's the case, you probably shouldn't be a rehabber because you're probably going to overspend on that rehab. Uh, There's a lot of horror stories out there that people had a great rehab project and a great potential, but they spent way too much money on it because they wanted new cabinets. They wanted new countertops. They wanted all new flooring instead of working with what was already there. And they sold it and it was beautiful, but they didn't make any money on it. What was the point? True. 
Like you just struck a vein in a car with me, one of the last houses. <laughs> Sorry <did>. about that. <laughs> nah. I mean to get but, personal. <laughs> yeah, but it was a lesson learned. And basically it happened. We was able to sell a house right before the interest rates started ticking up. So it was like, okay, good. We got rid of the house. Didn't really make any money. We broke even, but we didn't lose any money. Always got to look at the glass half full, right? That's right. And sometimes breaking even on a house is a fantastic thing to do because if you sometimes you had a property that, oh my, I'm, how am I ever going to get out of this deal and make any money on it? And if you can just get out and break even and you're out and now your energy can focus on the next deal. Mm -hmm. Sometimes yeah. breaking even is a fantastic thing to do and just move on. That's right. And that's the way I was looking at it. I was like, you know what? We got the offer that we wanted. We break even. Let's get rid of it and keep moving. And that's what we did. Those learning lessons are priceless in those break-evens. <laughs> they are. They That's are. right. <laughs> you remember the, you remember those lessons, don't you? <laughs> you do. For sure you do. Yeah. One thing I do want to tell people, though, is when you have those lessons, the best thing to do is just get back on a horse. Don't sit there yeah. and dwell over those lessons. Don't look at the mistakes that you made. Yes, you want to analyze everything, but you want to say, okay, the best way for me to get back out there is just to go and buy the next house and get right back to it. And that's what I did. And Todd, with you, you were building these houses and doing these buildings. Why did you decide to do the rent to own model or build to rent model? Because you were building these houses and then decided to keep some. Well, thank, thanks for asking that question because that's not something I get to talk about very often. But back in, I started building in 1990. And in 1994, I decided to start putting some of them up for rent the brand new houses. And the main impetus was that was one of the customers I built a house for, one of the first custom homes I did, built them a three-bedroom house, nice little house. And two years later, they called me up and told me that they needed me to build them another house. Could I build them another house? I said, what? I just built you a house two years ago. Wife was pregnant. They needed a fourth bedroom. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the, the house wasn't going to work anymore. So I built them a second house. And, and when they sold the first house, I built them, it'll been two years they made more money in that two years of owning that house than I made building them the house. And it took me five or six months to build the house. We built it in the middle of a blizzard that year. And I did five and six months worth of work on it, but they just owned it and made the payments for two years and then sold it. And they made more profit off of that. And it was all tax-free profit. Right. Then I made, they made about three or four times X after tax what I made building the house. And a little light bulb went on the house. I need to start keeping some of these houses. I'll make a lot more money. Um, and that's the bad thing about flipping. That's the bad thing about just fix Even if you're just doing a little bit of rehab or light rehab, or even if it's a gut rehab and you sell it within 12 months and you're a dealer, you're paying close to 50% tax on all that gain. And so I started studying tax law back in the early 90s and saying the best way to get ahead is to lower the amount of tax you pay on every dollar that you make. Yep by keeping a house long-term in at least two years and then selling it, your tax rate gets cut about a half if you sell it and do pay the taxes. And then there's other strategies that I also teach where you can sell and defer all the taxes and roll the money into another investment. It was some of those reasons why I started to start keeping them and keeping them long-term. So you're talking about the 31, I'm assuming, or? A 1031 is one method you can use. There's also a 721 upreap that you can use. And then there's another technique where you can use a trust and you can do an installment sale to the trust. And we have one of those set up. It's called a Blue Hat Trust. We offer that through our company, Blue Hat. We teach we, people how to do that. 
Can we briefly just give us a starting at 1031, you went over three topics. Can you just give us a sure. brief explanation of what each one is? Yeah, most people are familiar with 1031. It's the most talked about method. And part of it is because there's so many companies offering it and they're at every investor get together. There's always at least one representative of a 1031 company at every conference you go to. 1031s are typically cost $800 to $2,000 to set one up. And but they'd have a lot of restrictions on them. You have only have 45 days to identify a property and you have to close with 180. And it can only be used for real estate like kind exchanges, rental property for rental property type thing. There are, with every method, there's some restrictions, but those are the biggest restrictions at 1031. 45 days to find your property, 180 days to get it closed. Um, it creates a lot of pressure, that 45 days. Half the people I talk to, I, I know hundreds of investors because I've been in this for 40 years, and half the ones I talk to who have just completed 1031 aren't happy with it. They ended up buying a house or property they really didn't want, but they wanted it more than paying the taxes. And they'd already sold the other property. So if they didn't complete the 1031, they'd have to pay the taxes. So they were stuck. And they ended up buying something and they said, would you rather have the old property? Yeah, I'd rather have my other property back. I liked it better than I like this one. You don't know that going in unless there are some ways you can use options and stuff like that beforehand to have control over something, but not everybody does that. So um, that's the 1031. The 721 upread is a version of a REIT, uh, and you can sell your property to the REIT, and they will give you shares in their REIT. But there's a lot of restrictions on that as well. You are It's basically like a prearranged 1031. They already have the property the money's going to go into. They already have the financing for it, so you don't have to arrange that stuff. But they are 100% in control of the property, and they decide if and when they sell it and how they sell it and stuff like that. So you have no control over it. It becomes basically a passive investment, and they have a lot of fees involved in those. And, and they admit it. They'll tell us to collect 12% in fees um, for every dollar that goes into one that gets eaten up by fees. It's a great option, but it's not, in my yeah. opinion, the best option. Mm -hmm. um, the third option is using a trust. And you can do an installment sale. You can take a rental house and sell it to the tenant on an installment sale. And all the taxes are deferred until you get start getting your principal back. And you only pay taxes as you receive your principal back. If you happen to structure that as interest only, a loan to your tenant, then you'll be deferring those capital gains taxes indefinitely until at some point you start getting some principal back. And that could be 10, 20, 30 years down the road. We take it one step farther and we use a trust and we sell the properties to the trust and then okay. let on an, on an installment sale to the trust on an interest only installment sale to the trust. And then the trust turns around and sells the properties. The trust invests the money in other investments and it's not limited to just real estate. Although our trust invests mostly in real estate because we are real estate people and like real estate. But the trust can invest in stocks, bonds, mutual funds, ETFs. It can invest in REITs. It can, it can certainly invest in more real estate if you want to. It can also invest in businesses. A lot of people invest in lending businesses and do hard money loans out of their out of their money from their trust. So can I ask you, so I just piece it together. and every, So we have Todd LLC owns rental property. Todd and his wife maybe have a family trust, if I'm correct. Your trust. It's not a family trust, but, it, but it's a trust. Yeah. Okay. So, so it's, but yeah, it's, it's owned by your, you, all right? So your LLC sells it to your trust. Correct. And is there on an installment sales, assuming finance, seller financing, is that what you mean by that? If I'm... 
We sell it to the trust on an installment sale. We get a promissory note back from the trust saying they will pay us 8% interest on the million dollars that went into the trust or whatever it was. And it can be paid monthly, quarterly, annually, however you want to set it up. Um, as the creators of the trust, you're allowed to dictate the terms of the note. And then you, you, we get to appoint a trustee and the trustee runs the trust. And then the trustee can invest the money. At our suggestion, the trustee can will usually invest in what we suggest to invest in. Got it. Yeah, the one If I told my trustee I want to take the full million dollars and go buy Bitcoin tomorrow, I hope my trustee would push back and say, wait a minute, that's not a good idea. Number one, you're not diversified. Number two, <laughs> yeah. who knows what you could lose all your money if right. Bitcoin drops a little bit. So now I was just trying to follow the 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 breadcrumbs because so it's like your LLC sells to your trust and the trust sells to the end buyer. So when yes. you're when your trust buys it from your Todd LLC, say it's a million dollar sale, it could be whatever term, zero down, interest only, whatever you come up with. So there's probably no money exchanged, just it's just terms, right? Correct. So now the trust owns it on terms. And now they maybe go find the end buyer at hypothetically two million. And then they sell it to them on terms and maybe with a down payment, something more advantageous. Is that, and I just want to make sure I understand. Yeah, that's basically exactly how okay. it works. Most of the time, the, the trust sells it to the end buyer. It's typically about the same exact price of what you sold at the trust for because you, okay. you want to maximize how much of your profit goes into your trust and how much your promissory note is because you're reluctant, you are relinquishing control of your properties to the trust. You have no control over them ever anymore. Mm -hmm. Your only access to that money is from that promissory note that the trust gives back to you. Do you want to maximize that so you can maximize your return for your years of hard work of building those properties up? And that Interesting. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Great. Yeah. Todd, who is somebody that should do a strategy like that? Because I know well, you said with your service, Blue Hat, you guys do it. So is there a particular right. client that you look for in order to do this with or what's the obviously point? anybody who's wanting to exit like my wife and I, after 30 plus years of doing property management, we decided that what I'm, I'm about to turn 60. I plan to live to past a hundred and I don't want to be managing properties when I'm 80, 90 and a hundred years old. My original exit strategy was I'll keep all these properties when I die, my kids could inherit them at a stepped up basis, and then they can turn around, sell them, or do whatever they want. As we are, as a living older and older now, and our potential, you know, for health and longevity is increasing. I know a lot of investors who are in their 80s and 90s and still have their rental houses, and they're struggling to manage them in some cases. And their kids, a lot of times, don't even live near them. They've moved right. off to one example is kids are one's overseas somewhere and one's up in New England. They're not around to help them with anything that needs to be done with the houses. It, it becomes a struggle if you start to have health issues to manage these properties because it's even a struggle for some people when they get in that age to go out and meet somebody just to sign a lease and that, do that type of things because maybe they can't even, they're struggling to drive. This is a great exit strategy for somebody like that who's had properties for a long time. They're getting older and they're, maybe starting to have some health issues or having health issues and they're not that much older and just struggling to manage their properties. But increasingly what I'm finding is a lot of our clients are people who bought and started in the real estate investing business after the downturn. They bought houses in 2010, 2011, 2012, when they were getting houses at 50 cents on the dollar. 
And now some of those houses are worth three and four X what they paid for them. And they're scattered all over. And then one guy is, I had lunch with him last year. He said, these are were old houses when I bought them and they've just gotten older the longer I've kept them. And I'm tired of all the repairs. I'm tired of the calls from the tenants. And I want, and I, what I really like is I really like managing my three Airbnbs I have. He said, those are fun. Cause I, when I go visit those, I'm in Gatlinburg, Tennessee, or I'm, I'm, I'm at the beach somewhere yeah. at my, visiting my property. And that's fun. And that's exciting. So he's exiting, he's selling his houses. He's taking all the profits, putting it in the trust to defer the tax. And then he's reinvesting the money into brand new build Airbnb properties in places he wants to go with his family. And so he's still going to be full-time in real estate, but this allows him a way he can transition from one asset class or from one location, or maybe from a lot of investors that have three or four or six single family houses they got started with, and maybe a couple of duplexes, and maybe they got a couple of mobile homes they bought, and they got a little mini storage warehouse, and they're scattered all over the place, and there's different marketing, there's different leases. It's, it becomes a lot of investors, when they start, just want to get a deal done, and that's great, and I applaud them, get a deal done. But four or five years later, you need to set point, you need to start focusing on what you want to concentrate on or you will end up like some investors I'm working with now, they're 20 years in and they're frustrated because they can't figure out which way to go every day. So I know I need to go. I know there's trash at the mini warehouses I need to clean up because the guy moved out. And, but I know I need to go this direction, check on this house. And they've got so many different directions to go. It becomes frustrating to them to run the business. That's why I suggest to them, how about you fit? Pick your favorite one and keep it. What is it? The houses? Is it the mini warehouse? What's your favorite property class to own, or your favorite location to own? Talking to another investor, he's got five rental houses. They're all in five different states, and every one of them requires an airplane flight to get to for him to go see it. Wow. I said, okay, you need to pick one location and focus yeah. on one location. So you're taking five flights to go check on five houses. That doesn't make any sense. You better have those five houses in at least one city. If you got to get on an airplane, at least you can go see all five of them when you buy a plane ticket. That's a way you can transition. You can use the trust to help you transition and not have the time restriction of the 1031. Now, I've got nothing that's 1031s. If if you happen to have a house and you want to you and it's got two hundred thousand dollars of equity in it, and you want to use a 1031 to you split that equity up and buy two or three more houses, that's a great strategy for that. But there's a with the time restriction, it makes it tough for a lot of people to be able to do it. Does. Wow. It's a lot of good information right there, Todd. I mean, and I, I hope you guys that's listening that you're closely paying attention because those strategies can help you, like you said, condense your portfolio to focus on what you exclusively want to do versus, like you said, when you're younger, you're like, I just want to get a deal. So if it's a deal over here or a deal over there, as long as I got deals going. But once you start getting a little bit more seasoned, then it's like quality of life. What do I want to do to make my life easier? Because for most real estate investors, that's what they get into real estate for is how can I make my life easier and gain that passive income? And then they get lost in the weeds with flipping and wholesaling and some something else that, that looks good, but it deteriorates the quality of life down the road. And all those varied investments, like I have five houses and five, they could all be great investments individually. But how do you go see them? How do you go check on them? You know, he, he says, I'll try to get to at least one, each one of them at least once a year. 
but that doesn't always happen because he's got two little kids and he's got a W-2 job. So it's, he's, sometimes it's, I don't get to house for two years. How do you keep up with what's going on there and what's changing in the neighborhood, whether you want to keep holding right, it and right. stuff like that. They can be great investments, but just to give you an example, I focused my investment. We were up to 84 properties that we owned at one point. And they were all, I could, it would not take me longer than 20 minutes to get to any one of those 84 properties. I, once I found a location, I would buy multiple properties in that location. I'd get to one subdivision. I might have seven houses in that one subdivision. I might have 10 over in this other subdivision. I could literally in one afternoon in about three hours, I could make a, get my truck and make a drive and go buy every single property in one afternoon. That's the difference of being focused or getting scattered. And I also only had single family houses and all my single family houses had the same wall color in every house. They had the same floor cover. They had the same color cabinets. They had this, I had one wall paint and one trim paint that I needed mm -hmm. to touch up or paint any one of those properties. You're just keeping it simple. It saves you time. It saves you cost. I didn't have paint cans all over the place trying to figure out which can went to which house. Right. That right. one can of paint went to every single house. We also used one type of dishwashers, one type of water heaters, one type of stoves in all those houses. So if any of those needed parts, I had the parts in my basement to fix any of those things mm -hmm. um, or replacements. I've got like 10 extra dishwashers and stoves in my basement that I keep. So I just take one and swap it out if something went wrong. Didn't you have to wait for a repairman? So it's just, so... just a lot of things you learn with time. Over, yeah. over time, you learn these things because time is your most precious commodity. So if my houses had been all over Metro Atlanta, and this is how I honed in on the strategy. I worked for a builder in Atlanta back in 1984. And Atlanta was about half the size it is now back in 1984. And, but I worked for a builder there. And I, my kind of my job was as I was the warranty guy. If people moved in and there was something wrong, I'd have to go find out if we were responsible for fixing it or not. And when people move into a brand new house, there's, there's 50 to 100 subs that work on a house. There's inadvertently things that happen. They move in and they realize there's no trim inside the closet. The, the walk-in closet never got trim put in it or something like that. Or maybe it didn't get painted. Right. So I'd have to go check on all that stuff. The builder would give me a list. says, here's the eight things I need you to go look at today. I couldn't get to them. I, I didn't let alone have time to fix them. It would take me an hour and a half to get to the first house because of traffic. Then I'd leave that house and they want me to go to another subdivision. It might take me another hour and a half to two hours to get to that house because of the traffic. Mm -hmm. They weren't even that far apart, but the traffic was so bad. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't get much done. I said, when I own properties, they're going to be close together because I, I hate this sitting in traffic and sitting in my truck and getting nothing done all day. I go home at night and I look at my list. And I got the three out of the eight jobs right, I was right. supposed to go to today. <laughs> And that's just living in frustration again. Because mm -hmm. you feel unproductive because you're like, man, I couldn't even get eight things done on a punch list. This is ridiculous. And then in the meantime, they generate another punch list for the next day. And I haven't finished today's work yet. How can I go do that stuff? Mm -hmm. <laughs> True. So what would you tell somebody, Todd? This is, again, very good information. What would you tell somebody that's transitioning from they may be a little bit seasoned and they owned 10, 15 rental properties. What would you tell them in this market right now? What kind of advice would you share with them if they're looking to divest out of those properties? First of all, I tell them you are extremely lucky to be in the era that we are in because right now in real estate, it's basically the sky's the limit. There are so many options and so many ways you can invest in real estate now. When I started, there were not. Just for houses as an example, you can do 
vacation rentals, rent them by the night for vacation rentals. You can do midterm rentals to traveling nurses and traveling professionals or to people who work from home, but they're traveling and spending three months in this city and three months in this city and just working from home on their computer. You can do obviously do long-term rentals and you can do owner financing. You can do, so you've got five or six strategies just with a single family house. And that doesn't count many warehouses and mobile homes and syndications where you pool your money with your buddies at work and you all buy a property together and things like that. What I tell people is pick the strategy that really suits your personality and that you really think you'd like and for a long time. Because when I got my first properties and bought that first lot in 1990, I couldn't imagine what it'd be like 40 years later. And I can't believe 40 years has gone by. It doesn't seem like it. In you know, some respects, it seems like it's been five to 10 years since I started. But when I get up in the morning and my bones hurt a little bit, I was like, no, it has been 40 years. <laughs> my back's a little stiff. Yeah, it's been a while. Uh, but, but time goes by quickly. The longer you have things, the more times you have to make trips to that house, it adds up over time. If you buy a house in the next city over and it takes you two hours to get there and two hours to get back, Every time you got to move in or move out or you got to do inspection, you're going to kill a whole day going to that house. Yep. And that may not matter when the first three months when you own it and it's your first property. But when you've owned it for 20 years or 30 years, you get sick and damn tired of getting in the car and riding mm -hmm. to that property. I can tell you, I've been, been there just working for other people that have properties scattered. I got tired of doing it even though I was getting paid by the hour to do it. Wow. Do you use property managers? Do I use property managers? Yeah. No, we've never used one. We've all, my wife and I started the business together and she's helped me start managing the properties in 94 when we got our first, when we converted our first uh, new home to a rental house. Awesome. And we just always done it ourselves. We had an employee or two over the years that worked for us. Um, you know, some, most of them were usually like a part-time or two thirds time employee. Um, some of them have other jobs and they just work for us 10, 20 hours a week and stuff like that. So um, <laughs> we've pretty much always been hands-on. We interviewed a bunch of property managers at one point. We we're considering getting a property manager. And then we talked to a lot of people who had property managers. And there, there's a lot of great property managers out there. There's a lot of bad property managers, just like any profession. But you do have to you know when you hire somebody, whether it's an employee or a property manager, you still have to manage them. Right. Yep. And there's a lot more cost involved. Most property managers mark up. When, when the tenant calls them and says the AC is not working, they turn around and call the AC man and he goes out there and he says, oh, it wasn't plugged in, but here's your bill for $75 for me going out there to find mm -hmm. that the kid pulled the plug out of the wall if it was a wall window unit or something. And that's all that was wrong. And then you get, and then the property manager marks that bill up 10% mm -hmm. or 20% for handling it. And you get all of a sudden it's cost you a hundred dollars and there was nothing wrong. And and those add up quickly. And yeah. I'm a real numbers guy and a, a spreadsheet guy. And I look at all the percentages of returns and total returns and the month, the months and all that kind of stuff. And that kind of stuff would drive me nuts if I saw that coming in. Mm -hmm. I'd be like, you're fired. I got to take it back over. Yeah. So, awesome, you your, so you and your wife, Todd, built an 84 unit portfolio, just you and your wife, just being grassroots, building the houses, managing the properties, managing the tenants and everything like that. What's one thing that you would tell somebody if they wanted to take that same blaze, that same trail that you blazed? There are various ways to do it. Doing everything hands-on yourself is not for everybody. I wear a hat every day and it's almost always a blue hat, which is, that's why my company is called Blue Hat Wealth. 
it's who I am and it gives me excuse to have a blue hat on every day because it's my company logo. But it's not for everybody doing wearing that many hats. It's really goes back to personality again. For some people, I know lots of successful investors that I don't even own a pair of work boots, may not even own a hammer, may not have ever painted a house before and wear you know loafers and dress pants when they go look at their houses. And because that's who they are and that's their personality. And they, they're going to, if there's some trash on the floor, they're going to call somebody to come clean up that trash. They're not going to pick it up themselves. So it's your personality and there's nothing wrong with, there's no perfect way or right way for to do it. It's, that's what I, I tell people all the time that real estate is beautiful because anybody can do it any way they want to and be able to make money in it. You can make money umpteen different ways in real estate and you can run it any way you want to with or without property managers, houses versus apartments versus mini warehouses. What, there's so many avenues to choose from that surely there's something that almost everybody could find that they would enjoy. A uh, question I have along that another topic is you were you've been working with your wife for what 30 or the 40 years or the whole 40 right. we've been married for 38 years and God. she started working with me in the business when our second child was born god his wife is in the business with him my wife is in the business with me so any advice it's working together on a daily basis running living together working together it's a lot there any right. words of wisdom to everyone listening it's in the same position yeah, because we need it. It's just it's just <laughs> like being married itself is challenging. Being being together with somebody for we've been together for 39 years now. Got married not long after we started dating. But just every relationship has its ups and downs. The number one thing is whether it's the business partner or your tradesman or your wife or your spouse or your significant other is communication. Just listening. And the key to listening is to actually be present when they are talking which means you're actually, you're not looking at your phone. You're not looking at the football game on TV. You're looking them in the eye and listening to what they're saying and hearing what they're saying. And when somebody else is talking, you shut up and listen. And that's, I think that's one of our biggest things that change in society these days and why so many things aren't as long-term as they used to be is that people aren't as focused anymore because there's so many distractions. Everybody has a phone in their hand. Some people have two or three phones in their hand. And there's and everywhere you go, there's umpteen screens. You can't walk in a restaurant without seeing screens everywhere. And it's hard to focus. It, it's hard to have business meetings in a restaurant because there's so many distractions around you. It's hard to listen. It's hard to hear what the other person's saying. That's my key to long-term business partnerships, long-term marriages, good relationships with your children, is listening to each other. We always had a rule in our house when we sit down to have lunch, breakfast, or dinner, the TV's off and the cell phones are gone. There's no distractions. We're just there to listen to each other and spend a little bit of time together. And that was okay. one of our rules. And we even have Thanksgiving dinner at our house and our, and our nieces and nephews would come over and they want them to pull off phone and say, the phone's got to go away or you got to leave the table. You, you aren't eating if you're bringing a phone to the table. So you awesome. know, it was always just a hard, fast rule in our house. No, no TVs on, no cell phones on when you're sitting down to have dinner. Awesome. It's good. It's good. Communication time. Yep. <laughs> True. So Todd, how can we get to know more about you? How can we find you? Because I know you you said that you run a like a RIA or meetup back home in, in northern Georgia. How can we find you to glean some of this experience from me? 40 years. Well, you can email me. You can go to my website, which is bluehatwealth.com. 
There's a link on there you can click that will send me messages or you can email me directly, pod at bluehatwealth.com and, and get a hold of me. I'm on some of the socials too. I'm trying to be on the socials more. As I'm transitioning personally from being a very active, very hands-on manager and switching that money into being more passively invested and being less hands-on, I am transitioning into helping other investors, teaching them some of these techniques, helping them decide about shrinking down their portfolio or focusing on one asset class or focusing on one city. I'm helping investors like that. And I'm also helping investors uh, to transition by showing them how they can defer the taxes so that they can transition and use 100% of their equity to transition. And Blue Hat Wealth is the website we use for doing all of that. Okay. Great. You guys know exactly what to do. You want to reach out to Todd, go to Blue Hat Wealth dot com schedule some time with him if you're looking to transition from more active investing over to passive investing reach out to todd he'll definitely help you as well so todd man we really appreciate you being here again 40 years of real estate experience is nothing to sneeze at man that's excellent i got a lot of gray hair just from the 12 years i've been doing it and it's wow <laughs> And I want to thank you, number one, for having me. I also want to thank you for using the word experience because a lot of people say, oh, you're an old investor. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So Season. 40 years can, can be seen either way. I prefer, prefer to tell people that I'm an experienced investor, not an old investor. There you awesome. go. There you go. So Todd, well, thank, thank you, you guys. so much. Yep. Thank you thank so you. much for being here. Again, guys, go to Blue Hat wealth.com that's bluehatwealth.com and remember at as real we want to empower each investor one property at a time thanks for listening to the asria show with your hosts marcus maloney and mike delpreet we hope you enjoyed this episode if you found this information valuable head over to asria.org and learn more about our community